Hello and welcome to a new season of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. If you're new to the podcast, then rest assured that you can still find all of our previous episodes available to listen to completely free of charge. If you subscribe to us on any podcast app or platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or others, then you'll find the whole feed available. You can also listen on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com where there are pages available for each and every season, as well as our extra bonus content, which we created to keep everyone entertained during the pandemic lockdowns. There's lots to look forward to this year, including more episodes written by me, a mini-series looking at storytelling in America, a special on the Reader's Digest classic Myths and Legends of Britain, which celebrates its 50th birthday this year, and crossover episodes with some other great folklore podcasts. On top of that, a new structure to our Patreon support pages with extra interaction options and a drawing together of the podcast and the folklore library and archive, which was born from our work here and a programme of 15 folklore podcast fundraising lectures from some world-class experts in folklore and associated fields. Please follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod if you use it, or bookmark and visit our website regularly. While you're there, sign up for our e-newsletter to make sure that you don't miss a single announcement. I hope you'll be with us for the whole season. We're kicking off this year with a look at English folk tales in an interview recorded at the end of last year with author Neil Phillip. Neil is an award-winning author, folklorist and poet from the Cotswolds. His work as a publisher of folk tales has been ranked by Philip Pullman alongside that of Alan Garner, the author saying that it deserves to be bound in gold and brought out on ceremonial occasions as a national treasure. Having previously produced the Penguin Book of English Folk Tales, his latest collection, published by Watkins, carries a foreword from Neil Gaiman. In this book, Neil Phillip presents each of around a hundred tales in the form in which they were first collected along with his own introduction and accompanying source notes, making it a valuable volume for anyone with an interest in traditional stories. Neil discussed his work with English folk tales for the podcast with Dr Jenny Barrett, Senior Lecturer in Film Studies in the Department of English and the Creative Arts at Edge Hill University. And here is their conversation. Right, hello, my name is Jenny Barrett and I'm a film and history scholar and an enthusiast of folk tales and folklore as well as a writer. Welcome today to Neil Phillip, the accomplished and highly esteemed folklorist, author and poet, author of the recently published Watkins Book of English Folk Tales. Neil's book was first published in 1992 with Penguin. It's a collection of over 100 carefully selected renditions of folk tales that have been meticulously researched by Neil, and it will be a genuine treasure on the shelf for listeners to the podcast. So welcome to the Folklore Podcast, Neil. Hello, Jenny. Well, thank you for having me. 
It's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, what I found really interesting right at the very beginning was that we have a foreword from Neil Gaiman there. And I just want to mention that for a moment before we start to talk about the collection itself and some of your inspiration there. He writes, I read the Snow White story with three robbers instead of seven dwarfs, and it changed the inside of my head which I think is a wonderful way of describing the effect that some of these tales can actually have on the reader. Or maybe we should say the listener, because you go to great pains to remind us that a lot of these tales originate in an oral storytelling tradition. Um, it, it literally changes the way that we see stories that we already thought that we knew. So can you tell us why why do we need this book? Why reissue it right now? Um, well, I was always a bit disappointed that the book, when it was first published, did really sort of fell into a void. Um, and I put so much work and effort and thought and care into it. I really put my heart and soul into it. Um, and so I'd begun to think, well, maybe, I, you know, as the rights have reverted to me, maybe I should republish it myself in some way. And I mentioned this to a a friend who's a sort of freelance editor, Simon Spanton. And he said, well, I think Watkins would be interested in that. Um, and so I sent a copy to Fiona Robertson, the publisher at Watkins, and she leapt on it with glee. <laughs> um, and so that's that's purely um, serendipity. Um, but I think the book is getting so much very kind attention and acclaim I think it it is sort of hitting the zeitgeist in a way. Um, And certainly there's a a lot more interest in being paid at the moment to folk tales and the way folk tales intertwine with landscape. I think it's it's partly to do with this um, reinvigoration of people's sense of... um, the land being a storied environment um, that you've suddenly got a lot of writers drawing their their inspiration from folk tales and folk songs. Um, And so I think it's just hit its moment, which is very nice for me. Yes, I think you're right. It's making me think of Edward Parnell's book very recently that he's brought yeah. out, where he's very much inspired by the landscape at the, the I think again, the Northeast, um, particularly that he found himself drawn back to from visits as a child. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good book. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been quite a few like it or sort of similar to it coming up like Carolyn Larrington's um, Land of the Green Man is another one um, and uh, I think that's you know it's all to the good really. Fantastic well we'll talk a little bit more about um, about that about your inspiration about uh, why folk tales are so important uh, but let's talk a little bit about, about what we find within the collection. We've got many very well-known tales here we've got jack and the beanstalk we've got cinderella um and a certain generation of brits and plenty of others too will have first encountered these stories when they were learning to read um many i I would hazard a guess in ladybird books for example so um what do you think these versions contribute to these well-loved tales that we feel like we've already known i wanted to show 
the range of voices that you find in the recorded tradition of English folk tales and the range of registers of voice as well. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm interested in about folk tales in general is that they weren't seen as particularly as children's stories. I mean, there are English folk tales which were seen particularly as stories for children, and they're mostly really macabre and frightening. <laughs> and uh, but but uh, something like Jack and the Beanstalk was not particularly. You know, these were adult entertainments, um, and this is true of all wonder tales, you know, of the Grimm's tales as well. Um, and it's really been a slow process of attrition that these tales, which are full of murder and incest and all kinds of awful things, have suddenly been come to be regarded as suitable only for children. Um, and it's, it's simply not the case. It's a sort of a Disney-fying effect, isn't it? That we, we it see is, these, yeah. these tales adapted um, in this way. And and I think that it, that's really only happened in the last sort of, well, certainly in the last two hundred years. You know, before that, I don't think anybody had thought of these stories as stories for children at all. And you're saying also that you're thinking about different voices. So we're hearing multiple versions of tales. You you um, have collected um, sort of single versions, but then in your notes, you're talking about there are other versions of this available with a different kind of a voice from a different region. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important for people to not to feel that there is a fixed text of a folk tale or a definitive version of a folk tale, because each version, as it's told, is changed by who's telling it, who they're telling it to, the circumstances of, of telling. You know, everything alters the story. Um, I wanted in this book to give absolutely authentic texts in that I was reproducing exactly as I found them the folk tales in, in good versions. Um, but I didn't want to suggest these are the only versions or this is the only way of telling the tale. I mean, partly I wanted the book and still want it to be a kind of source book for storytellers, for poets, for novelists to, I mean, that's why I particularly like it that someone like Neil Gaiman would take the version of Snow White in that book and turn it into Snow Glass Apples, for instance, uh, which is a wonderful book. Um, and it's not a retelling of the Snow White in here, but it's a, um, a recasting of it or a reimagining. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think that's it, that he, he writes for um, a contemporary audience, but he's taking something from a, a long tradition um, and, and like you say, recasting it. I like this idea of, of there not being a definitive version because these, these stories often come from an oral storytelling tradition. Yeah. Um, is that how you could see? Do you, do you hear these stories? Do you, do you listen to them in your mind when you're, you're selecting them? Well, when I was making the selection, because I mean, this, this book's almost the same 
in, in terms of selection as the original edition. Um, I was definitely wanting ones that worked with a feeling of an oral tale, but also ones that worked on the page. Um, and that's quite difficult, actually, with some of the um, ones that are transliterated into very heavy dialect. And, and one had to make a decision. Does, does, does one keep this, you know, thicket of <laughs> wrongly spelled words <laughs> or does one alter it? And I, I decided to keep everything exactly as I found it. Uh, but it does mean that some of the stories, I mean, like the ones collected in the Lincolnshire Fens by uh, Marie Clotilde Balfour, um, you, you, it's actually easier to read them aloud than it is reading them on the page because you 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 get the rhythm of them um, and you you get the understanding that the importance of dialect in the tellings is to do with um, the grammar and the very specific dialect words rather than putting on a, an accent. Um, and, uh, you know, so certainly with those, it's it's easier to work out exactly what's going on when you read them aloud than it is when you just read it on the page. Um, so I wonder know, if your your background as a poet is actually key in, in that, in that selection of hearing the words aloud. Um, well, certainly, I mean, I suppose it's something that I have always done with literature generally. I mean, I like reading poetry aloud i like reading stories aloud um i like being read to as well so in terms of that i i feel um things like rhythm and color in a text are as important as simply the wording of them and I mean, because actually I wasn't writing poetry really in those days, or if I was, I was writing very bad poetry. <laughs> so, okay, uh, so what, what what do you think it is then about the English folk tale that fascinates us so much? We, so many of us feel compelled to return to them again and again. And and you're saying that just at this moment in time, you you, you sort of you've hit the zeitgeist. You you've got your your finger on the pulse somehow. What is it that keeps drawing us back? Well. I think it's to do with somehow recognising, a deep recognition of the voices that we find in a book like this one, um, that they somehow, they've got an authenticity to them. They feel like they stem from a real living culture and express a real living culture. Um, and it's not as if the stories that we find in England are all that different from the stories that you find in, you know, pretty well every other country, certainly in the Indo-European tradition. Um, the same basic plot types recur again and again and again everywhere you look. Um, but there's a certain element of the Englishness of these stories, which is not to do with plot. It's to do with the way they're told, and the way they feel, the way they feel in the mouth. Um, and there's a certain sort of essential Englishness to them. I mean, in in the slightly laconic way in which many of them are told, um, 
and in the informality of the English tradition. I mean, quite a lot of storytelling traditions are really quite formal. There are set rules about who's allowed to tell stories, when they're allowed to tell them. People will gather specifically for storytelling sessions and sit and listen to the local storyteller. Um, and the English tradition, tradition, as far as I can see, was never really like that. It was much more informal. People just told stories as and when. Um, and therefore, you tend to get shorter stories. You tend not to get as many of the long wonder tales that we are familiar with from people like Grimm. Um, you get an awful lot of local legends and stories about ghosts and mermaids and um, witches and things like that. A lot of comic tales, which are really just told to make you laugh. You see, you find the same tales again and again. Often, and, you know, it's a bit like the modern um, urban legends. You know, things that happen to a friend of a friend. I mean, you're endlessly being told the same story by people who claim it happened to the friend of their friend. Um, and and a lot of these stories are, are rather similar, really. Um, I mean, I just made a note just before we talked about a, a story that I quoted in the introduction to the book. So Wiltshire Man at the end of the 19th century, he says, I've heard him say as Adam were made and then put up again a old earl to dry. And I mean, that's it. That's the whole story. <laughs> but it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's a little piece of English mythology. Um, it's almost like flash fiction, isn't it? Yeah. Which, which we're yeah. quite, it's quite common today. I mean, one of the things I notice very much in so many of the tales is that they don't have the sort of structure that we're now used to, which you, you've just mentioned. We don't have the long tail or the, the moral being lathered on thickly for us to understand what the point of the tale was. It just is the tale. Yeah, I mean, the, the addition of morals to tales is not really very common. I mean, the, the, the big folktale collection that does have more morals is um, Perrault's in France. Um, but that, you know, that's quite a literary approach to retelling the stories. Um, and it's a rather a sort of sophisticated, literary, ironic take. Um, in, in his rhymed morals. Um, but I mean, uh, an English tale will just end saying, you know, and then I went away or something like that. <laughs> and that's it. Though you do get these lovely, uh, formulae at the beginning and at the end of tales, which, you know, I really like. And, and I mean, even sometimes they're quite truncated, but, um, they've got a sort of, they, they they locate the story outside time. I mean, there's a very good example, if I can find this, Clever Jack, which is a version of um, the Master Thief story, which you find all over the place. And this was um, collected by Henry Mayhew, who wrote London Labour and the London Poor, as an example of the kind of stories that they told in the casual wards of London workhouses in the 1860s. Um, and this is told by a 16-year-old boy. Um, and it starts, You see, mates, there was once upon a time, and a very good time it was, a young man. And he runned away and got along with a gang of thieves. 
and you know um, you're you're in the story pretty immediately but you've been ushered into it with this formula of once upon a time and a very good time it was yeah um and you know there are some really elaborate beginnings i mean the, the version of um jack the giant killer in here um has got you know three or four paragraphs of opening formulae before you get to the story itself. Then you get the story itself. Um, and then you get uh, at the close, a little closing formula, which is Bebo Bendit, my story's ended. If you don't like it, you may mend it. <laughs> um, and there's loads of these things. You can just uh, imagine really it, can't you, the, the way in which the audiences or the listeners would have really understood that kind of coding, I suppose, of uh, yeah. their being um, cued in their responses to the tale itself with the, the, the ending that way. They know that there, it's time for them to clap and cheer yes. and then wait for the next story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And such a, a sort of a melodic feel to it as well, the way that you've read out that story there. You can hear that melody uh, in the in the written word, which works so well as a spoken word, yes. So, not surprisingly, I would say there's there's some um, sensibilities that are a little less palatable today um, that crop up in some of the stories. I'm thinking of the humpbacked, ugly sisters as loathsome characters uh, and uh, that sort of example. But um, do we dismiss those? How, how do we respond to these kinds of characters and stories in the 21st century? I think we just have to accept them as, to some extent, stereotypical figures that reflect the time in which they were told. Um, and I think in the folktale generally, there is, I mean, there's not much in the way of character in folktales. The, the, the characters are fairly one-dimensional and the the nature of the character is defined often by these um, descriptive characteristics of beauty or ugliness or whatever. I mean, there are folk tales that, that turn that the other way around so that you get a story like The Frog Lover, where the, you know, the good character is this sort of rather laced and slimy frog. And the bad character is this sort of lovely girl. So, you know, they're, they're not all completely stereotypical. Um, but yes, I mean, the thing that I have the most trouble with in uh, fairy tales is this stereotype of the wicked stepmother, which I think is very damaging, and you don't find very much, actually, in English tales. Um, and if you look at the Grimm's tales, very often the first version they noted down or the first version they published, it's a mother. And then they 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 changed these mothers to being stepmothers. I mean, not in every case, but in some cases, um, uh, uh, as a way of sort of not offending them. The mothers of Germany, basically. Yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, if you look at, for instance, English versions of uh, the tale type, My Mother Slew Me, My Father Ate Me, uh, which we know best probably from the Grimm's Juniper Tree, in which it's um, a wicked stepmother who 
kills the son of the new husband by his previous marriage and uh, bakes him into a pie and then the bones get buried and the tree uh, not, not does a tree grow up i can't remember now in juniper tree but anyway he turns into a bird and the bird's song yeah. then reveals the dastardly plot that's happened um and in 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 that grim tale he gets transformed back into a child again at the end now that's one of the commonest stories you find in england um and I don't know that there are any versions in which the child is actually um, transformed back. You know, they're killed and turned into a bird, and that's that. Yeah. I mean, the the one in this book um, is the rose tree, um, and uh, the bird sings this mournful little song. My wicked mother slew me. My dear father ate me. My little brother, whom I love, sits below, and I sing above. Stick, stock, stone, dead. And there mm-hmm. it ends. I mean, the, the retribution is, is uh, wreaked on the mother, um, which it, it always is in these tales. But um, there's no happy ending. And, and, and it is actually a mother. I mean, there's another one I quote in the notes um, where there's not even any transformation. It's just, you know, the mother kills the daughter and serves her up in a pie. Um, Genuinely grim. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really gruesome tale. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a real appetite for the frightening and macabre, you know, the grisly and the gruesome. Um, much more so, I think, than there is for the tales of, of wonder and transformation. Um whether that's always been the case or whether we've just lost a lot of those wonder tales. Um, I mean, I think a lot were lost by the wayside in, first of all, um, the great upheaval of the Industrial Revolution. And if you think of people telling stories to each other, if you go and work in a cotton mill, you're not going to be telling stories because it's absolutely deafening. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally deafening, they all went deaf. Um, so there's, there isn't the space for those stories to survive in. Um, and there's also uh, this fairly early development of pretty well universal literacy in England. Um, and Although that's a good thing, literacy is sort of the enemy of the folktale, really, because it it takes away the need to remember the stories. And it also introduces the kind of uh, cheap retellings that soon began circulating in the 19th century um, of fairy tales um, in chapbook form these little books that were sold by peddlers. And these were often based on um, Perrault, for instance. So, I mean, it's interesting in um, the poem, the long poem, The Shepherd's Calendar by John Clare. John Clare was, he was known as the peasant poet, and he came from a an unlettered background. His father had a great stock of songs and of stories. Um, Clare could read. Um, 
And the version of Cinderella that he tells is a mixture of, you can tell, of a chapbook retelling of Perrault's version, because it's got um, the rat coachman um, and, a, and the fairy godmother that she's just described as a fairy. Um, but it's a mixture of that with obviously a local version, which probably his father told him, in which it's a golden glove that Cinderella loses at the ball. It's not a glass slipper. Um, and so you get there a, an interesting mix of inherited and learned um, tale in, 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 within the same story. And you, so you mentioned the Cinderella story. Obviously, you, you've you've published another book on uh, the Cinderella story, I believe, yeah. in the, back in the eighties. Is that right? Yes, um, that was. The... If I think, if I remember, is it Kappa Rushes is one of the stories that you have in yeah. the collection. Yeah. Um, that's the, the story that incorporates a daughter who is proving her love to her father with that idiom, "I, I love you as fresh meat loves salt." Yes, um, which is is not necessarily part of the Cinderella story that a lot of people will be familiar with. Um, Clearly, this has stood the test of time, but it's got lots of different versions there. Um, not only written, uh, published versions, but film and television as well. So this is an, an example of another tale that we keep being drawn back to. What is it about it, about Cinderella? Um, I think the crucial thing about the Cinderella stories, and that, that this is, goes through all the different types of Cinderella story, because there are a few distinct types as well as the Cinderella story we all know. I think the crucial meaning of it is that you can't extinguish a mother's love. I think that is the absolute bedrock of the Cinderella story. Because um, whether the dead mother comes back as a fairy godmother or as a talking fish or a cow or a, a gift-giving tree or, or sometimes a several of these things um it's this the mother's love is always there to look after the cinderella fig figure and get her out of her terrible situation in the end and make everything come right and i you know i think people think of it as a, a romantic story about you know the girl meeting her prince and things uh, it's got that element to it but I think the crucial thing is it's the mother's love that saves her. That kind of balances out, doesn't it, what you were saying about the, the treatment of the stepmother. Clearly there is this veneration of the mother figure yes. that comes through as a strong trend. Yes. Whereas in a lo lot of Cinderella stories, you know, the mother dies in childbirth <laughs> and the, the father um, promises he won't marry anyone who isn't as beautiful as the mother. And then the only person who's as beautiful as the mother is the daughter. And so there's this incestuous theme yeah. that runs through a, a lot of them, um, where the father is certainly not um, behaving in a way that you would want. Um, and equally in that sort of King Lear, Love of Salt variant, yes. um, you get this father who's just completely unreasonable. Um, and it has to be proved to him at his daughter when he's um, present, not realizing it's his daughter getting married at the wedding feast, and she serves up all the food without any no salt. salt. 
yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's an awful it's, wedding feast is the worst meal I've ever had and then uh, yeah, brings out another lot of dishes with salt in and he realizes the terrible mistake he's made yeah yeah um, and then we have the tears and and you uh placing to your introduction a um a strong appreciation for what you called the rewilding of the english folktale and i thought that was a really fascinating expression um talking about recent and contemporary storytellers at this point in time taking tales i think you were saying out of the hands of the academic world and back into the hands of those who k
a children's comic coming to life and um this weird thing at the anomaly at the heart of the book is that you have this child living seemingly on his own in the middle of nowhere um and it's not at all clear whether the child's supposed to be alive or dead and at the end the child asks the other main character treacle walker the rag and bone man am i dead and treacle walker says uh something like um i would rather say in this world you have changed your life and gone into another place goodness got into another place which is pretty well word for word what mallory says about king arthur um so you know it's one of these books of incredible depths and resonance um but you know i mean and it's just been a, a contender for the booker prize which i yes. was really thrilled to hear um and, and you know i hope that will bring garner's books to a whole new audience I and mean, he's been a bit pigeonholed as a children's writer mm. um which was never wholly true even at the beginning and hasn't really been true for the last 40 years. So, um, and the adult novels he's published have been really complex works. I mean, the children's books are complex too. Um, I mean, in some ways, the book of his I like best is the Stonebook Quartet, which is the one with the most uh, a sort of crystalline clarity on the surface this and yet these unfathomable unfathomable depths below um and i think that that is the book so it's four little interlinked novellas mm-hmm. um in which he really never puts a foot wrong at all um but i, I he's one of our finest writers absolutely the post-war era um and 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 that's why i dedicated this book to him um, because he's someone who really understands the folk tale and in particular the English folk tale. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I believe that he's actually said that for some reason that he doesn't quite understand, it seems that children connect with his stories better than adults do. So perhaps there's, there's some kind of um, acceptance that children have of a tale that adults can't work their way through they're too critical perhaps too analytical to actually accept it i certainly think there's this there's always this element of uncertainty in ghana you know almost everything can mean two or three or four different things depending on what angle you look at it from and i think a lot of adults want an absolute straightforward certainty in a story they don't want to be given a, almost a cubist story in which you can see eyes on the, the side of the face as well as the front. Yeah. Um, and so it, to that extent, I think a, a mind which is less set in its ways is going to find Alan Garner's work easier to respond to because they haven't got the same uh, expectations of a particular kind of storytelling. Mm. Absolutely. And I want to actually note, actually, um, 
some of the very same people who call themselves fans of Ghana, so we've got people like Neil Gaiman, Philip Pullman, they're the very same people who are offering praise for this book that is come, yeah, I, that's come out. I mean, I think it's there is a a big overlap between the kind of people who really respond to folk tales and the kind of people who really respond to Ghana as a writer or indeed to Gaiman or to, to Pullman. Um because it's a love of I don't really want to say the fantastic, but the the beyond reality. Um the sense of of numinousness, of there being another world but behind a thin veil that we could only, we can reach if we just reach out with our imaginations. Um and I think that that's really what folk tales give us is access to this other world. I mean, in, in stories about actual fairies, there you know, it is absolutely acted out that the protagonist goes into another world entirely. Um, and in the so in the fairy tale of Cherry of Zena, for instance. Cherry meets a gentleman on the moors and he offers her a job and she takes his job as a nursemaid to his child, his mother has died. Um, and just like the boy in Freaker Walker, she rubs a magic ointment on her eye and it just obtains the glamoury and she can see that she's actually living with fairies yes. in, a, in another world. Um, but when she reveals that she can see them, um, even though she and her fairy master have fallen in love she's cast out ne never to come back again um and basically dies of a broken heart um so you get all these stories about human beings being able to enter another world and beings from other worlds being able to enter our world it's a permeable membrane um yeah it's an interesting topic. Absolutely. And I think that's what a lot of us are drawn to is, is, is wanting to move beyond that veil and see, see what we can find there. And, and many of these tales enable us to do that in your collection. Um, I've just got one more question for you, Neil, which is, um, a comment that you make on your website. Actually, you say this, this statement, there is still a lot more to write now for any fan of your work of course that's music to our ears um but but what is there still to write for you um well i'm working at the moment on a vastly over ambitious book about what myth is what it means and why it matters um which is sort of taking in the whole of every human society and culture since like the ice age to now, um, which is taking me forever to write because every sentence seems to require me to read another five books before I think, well, I can't make that any better. Um, so but when I've got to the end of that book, um, which is uh, called at the moment, The Hidden Matrix, um, I've got a an equally big book on um, the fairy tale and stories and storytelling Great. Um, in the works, a lot of which is actually already written because it's basically going to be a collection of essays and lectures and things that I've given over the years um, with a few new bits and pieces here and there. 
Um, I've got a new and selected poems ready to go. Um, and I've got quite a lot of ideas for um, fiction. I mean, I've only really published one novel, The Tale of Sagawain, right at the beginning of my career, yeah. um, which has just been translated into Japanese, which I'm rather thrilled about. Yeah. Um, but I've got quite a lot of ideas for novels. So, I mean, I'd like to see if I can actually get to the end of one rather than just writing the first few chaps and giving up, which <laughs> has been uh, uh. has happened in my past. Um, and I've got various other ideas for sort of folklore kinds of books. It, it, it a bit depends, really. I mean, I'm hoping as this book has done, it looks as if it's going to do very well, um, that I, I'll be able to pitch a few ideas to Watkins and they'll, they'll pick one they want to run with and we can go from there. That would be amazing. And without wishing time away, I can't wait to see some of those uh, books available. That's going to be wonderful. And I think uh, I, I know what to put on my Christmas list for next year. <laughs> so thank you so much, Neil, for joining us to talk about the Watkins Book of English Folk Tales. It's been an absolute joy and a privilege. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jenny. My thanks to Jenny and Neil for a fascinating exploration into the topic of English folk tales. You can get a copy of the Watkins Book of English Folk Tales from all good bookshops. So there we go. We're off into a packed season eight of the podcast. Watch out for new episodes, there's lots to come, and they're likely to drop more frequently this year as we get out as much content as we can. Don't forget, you can explore folklore in more detail through the Folklore Library and Archive, a non-profit organisation dedicated to the preservation of material on that subject. You can visit the website directly at www.folklorelibrary.com, where you'll find an ever-increasing repository of digitised material, as well as access to our library catalogue, indexes of audio lectures and more. You can also catch up on the podcast at www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can also buy books and other folklore merchandise through our folklore shop. And if that isn't enough, you can support us in different ways on our Patreon page and get even more written and recorded folklore content as well as interact with us exclusively through a newly opened Discord server. We look forward to a folklore-filled 2023. Thanks for listening. See you next time.